Hi, Holly. Hi, Zoe. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for joining me. Holly is a monthly contributor to Quillette, and it's been a pleasure having her contributions. She's a gender-critical feminist. So I wanted to get straight into it today. Mm -hmm. I wanted to know, are we living in a patriarchy? And when you ask that, do you mean we, the world in 2023, or do you mean we, Australia? Good question. Let's say Australia. Me, as an Australian woman... I'm 28. I mean, I guess I ask about the distinction because I think the answer is clearer globally than it is in sort of uh, wealthy, industrialised, democratic countries like Australia. But I still think you could probably defend a positive answer to that question. And (laughs) maybe the thing to be careful about is like these words like patriarchy that are often used extremely dismissively and derisively by their opponents. It's just careful to say what you mean by them, right? And then that often takes a lot of the sting out of people being able to ridicule your use of them. So what's a what's a helpful understanding of patriarchy? One that I like talk to my students about is that society is male-dominated in its major positions of authority and influence. If we just kind of checked whether Australia's CEOs and lawmakers and, you know, all the sort of relevant filmmakers, uh, people running the media, whatever, all those positions, does that tend to be male dominated? The answer to that is yes. There's other criteria like is the other sort of major social institutions and practices sort of male centered? Uh, And one thing that I think is really interesting there, including with countries like Australia, is thinking about something like heterosexual sex, for example, or pornography. Sex is still very male-centered in the way that we think about like what that practice is or whose pleasure it centers around or what like the main act is. So I think once you put this kind of, okay, a patriarchy is a society that is male-dominated, whose institutions are male-centered. I think another element of that definition that I quite like is that is control-obsessed, so would have high amounts of things like domestic violence or uh, coercive control or other sorts of controlling type behaviors. So you can argue about the definition, but then once you've got one you like, you can talk about whether Australia fits that. And I think arguably Australia would fit quite a few of those elements. Um, So, but of course that's still, you, you have to like, let me tell that story, right? Rather than is Australia a patriarchy? Yes. And then it's what, can I not tell the difference between Gilead and contemporary Australia? Obviously I can. Obviously women have lots of rights and opportunities in Australia, but is there still a role for feminism to play? Do we still need a resistance? I I think yes. I guess my question is, if Australia is a patriarchy, is it possible to not have a patriarchy? How far can we improve society full of humans, imperfect humans, can we achieve the opposite of a patriarchy? (laughs) Yeah, no, I mean, I think that's just a really good question. Um, And I guess there's a sense in which I and maybe quite a lot of the feminists historically live inside our heads. So the thought is like, we can at least imagine things being better and different. And we can sort of try to spell out the details of exactly what that might look like. And, And different women do that in different ways, right? Like, Charlotte Perkins Gilman writes a fiction that's a women-only utopia and has male anthropologists visiting for the first time and just being like their bullshit is absolutely not um, like accepted there and they just they don't their expectations are not met. So that sort of thing 
gives us a template for what a women-only or a female-empowered or female-centric society might look like. I mean, similarly, actually, the recent Barbie movie, right, that's got a vision of a women-only or women-supremacist or women-centered society in it. So I certainly think we can imagine these things and then we can try to work through are they compatible with human nature under the best possible conditions? And I think that has just been a question for all revolutionary movements, right? Like, can can we raise children communally or are, are people just so attached emotionally to their own offspring that we could only ever have something like the nuclear family? I don't know, but I just want to keep an open mind that like different conditions allow us to be very different. Okay. So are you interested in um, like evolutionary psychology? Have you done any reading or research into that? That's a, that's a passion of mine. I'm, I'm yeah. not an expert by any means, but I am interested because I definitely identified far more as a feminist up until about the age of 20. And then I don't know, I started yeah. seeing some cracks maybe in the ideology and I needed more probably scientific answers. Yeah. And so I, I went into uh, evolutionary psychology, which is a new science. And I know lots of people have issues with it and say there hasn't been enough research yet to conclude some of these, um, to come to some of these conclusions about sex differences. Yeah. So does that inform any of your thinking on these issues? I mean, I can certainly relate to the impulse of wanting an evidence-based feminism. And I certainly, I think I would share your frustration with feminism that is dogmatic or that seems to be operating on a certain set of principles as a matter of faith rather than a matter of evidence. So I'm very committed to that. And I sort of advocate for, and I've written about gender critical feminism needing to be non-dogmatic and and evidence-based. As to evolutionary psychology in particular, um, it's not an area of expertise, but I would say that my main reservation is um, how far these these sort of stories can really get us. So, of course, like they're highly speculative and they often are just like a hypothesis, like here's something that our evolutionary history has set us up for. So you have to be quite critical of like, how strong or credible the sort of the story is. And I also sometimes worry that these explanations that really appeal to our more animal natures, so they rest on things like, oh, well, like we do this thing, but so do the bonobos. They don't take enough of an account of human exceptionalism when it comes to language and culture and intellectual sophistication. So yes, maybe something is in our nature, in the sense of being like we've adapted to that over millions of years, that doesn't mean that our culture and civilization cannot transcend that or that we could not be better than that or do things differently. And from some of the stuff I'm familiar with, I do just worry they're not giving enough latitude to that. So they're saying, oh, it's just like it's just in our history that women will look after the babies and men will do the hunting. And it's like, well, okay, but we're not apes, are we? <laughs> like we're, we have sophisticated societies. Yeah. Well, speak we for yourself, decide. Holly. I've seen a lot of people <laughs> today. So why I, why I gravitated towards it when you talk yeah. about it, providing us with these easy answers, right? And um, instead of um, the belief that humans can improve, we sort of just say, oh, no, we're just like that. Humans yes. are animals. You know, we're violent. We rape, we murder. So... 
I, I get that that's a frustration with evolutionary psychology, but I do think that if we go for philosophy or ideology, then it yeah. opens up so many ideologies that yeah. it's like, where do you choose? And that's sort of how I feel about, um, you know, trans rights ideology and like yeah. gender ideology. How do you weigh up which ideology is best? How yeah. about we just go, boom, straight for the science, <laughs> you know, to be yeah, neutral? No, I mean, I can yeah, I can see the appeal of it and I can see how it sort of looks like a, a clear way to get an answer. And so, yeah, of course, I can, yeah, I can see why people would be drawn to that. Unfortunately, I just think there, there aren't any easy paths like that. I think in a democracy, we just have to work out together the most appealing conception of how we can all live together. And I think the liberal one has done pretty well, like it's attracted a lot of consensus, like, hey, let's just all pursue our own conception of the good in our own way and have these constraints about not like punching each other in the face or whatever. That's working pretty well. Of course, we can, yeah, we can tweak that and we can try to be patient about very different conceptions. The anarchists come along and say we shouldn't have a state and we hear them out, but then we say that's stupid um, and we carry on. Right? I just don't think there's a shortcut to like having that debate in the public sphere and interrogating all the ideas and asking who they hurt and who they help. Because I think if we were doing more of that in the trans debate, for example, then we would just be taking seriously, like, well, here's an ideology that these guys want, but here's who it harms or what it comes up against. How should a society like set all these conflicts of rights? Okay, maybe that's actually a bad ideology. But we don't we don't tend to do that because people don't tend to be well trained in like rigorously assessing ideas and managing trade-offs. They just tend to have these like emotional responses, I think. There has been a resurgence in this uh, emphasis on biology, though. That's part of, you know, the foundations of gender critical feminism. So my question would be, how do we accept and advocate that men and women are different? Men have XY, women have XX chromosomes. Why stop there? And why not go further to, to delve into some, for example, some of the more controversial areas of of sex difference research, which is that men and women show different um, traits, personality traits and interests. They don't, though. I think there have been some <laughs> a few studies across, whether it's On from average. the Congo to Scandinavia. My understanding, and I've talked to some evolutionary psychologists to help me prepare, is that there is, there is research. Average. Yes, there, average. Yes, agree with you. There are average differences. And that research is done by looking at how men and women are in specific societies now. So that is not the same thing as the claim men and women are different. And there is research showing that because that is a universal claim that these are types of humans or like their their biological nature or there's something innate about them that makes them different. That claim has hardly any evidence. I think, I mean, there's a few tiny things like three very small regions of the brain tend to show high sex differences. The stuff about behavior and traits, it's all average. There's huge overlap between men and women. There's some like distinctions at the tails. And I think maybe the more important point is if you think of a thought experiment like take some kind of like like Indian caste society at its worst point in history or like a slave system. And then imagine a, a, a very well-credentialed brain scientist or behavioral researcher coming in and then being like, lo and behold, there are big differences between these groups, right? Or one thing I use with my students is um, differences created by poverty. 
So dialect differences in the UK are not necessarily created by poverty, but just created by geography. But poverty might create like some people are fatter, some people have worse skin, some people seem to dress in this like cheaper, trashier way. Oh wow, they're really different. <laughs> but but the thought is like that's not innate. If we want to sort of say these two groups are different from each other, and that's our evidence, but then we have to figure out. Is that difference something that has been socially or culturally constructed and in what way and by what? Or is that something that's plausibly like really such a fundamental difference to the type of thing they are that it would show up in almost any social situation? So I'm just so I just want us to be really careful about that claim, like men and women are different. No, they're not. <laughs> but but, but there are differences. Diff- right. Okay. There are differences between men and women on average, but men and women as a universal claim, they're not very different at all. Okay. So one theory in evolutionary psychology is that the fact that women are on average smaller, on average less muscular, as we talk about in gender critical feminism all the time. Yeah. And at a disadvantage, if you even want to see it as that, I don't necessarily think it is a disadvantage, but I mean, in terms of sport and stuff, obviously it is. But um, the fact that we are smaller and weaker, we've developed these traits over time to be more agreeable, to be better with our words at calming down situations instead of fighting with our hands because our ancestors back in the, you know, basin of um, the Congo knew that, you know, a woman couldn't fend off a man. So we had to develop these traits. So... That's a pretty persuasive argument, I think. But it's persuasive culturally, right? I mean, what's the hereditary mechanism supposed to be? Like, It's really hard to tell that story. So how is that? It's enculturated. So we come up with some strategies that work really well in not ending up dead. And then the mother passes them on to the daughter or the grandmother passes them on to the, if she's the one caring. So this stuff is culturally transmitted. It's not an innate difference of females that they are more like accommodating or soothing. It's that we have long thousands of years lessons in like what works well or divisions of labor or whatever else. And I think the risk is that those things can come to look so old and so universal that we assume they are our nature. But the feminist me wants to say, don't confuse the way that we have been socially and culturally produced to be, which is all these traits of femininity that people might talk about now. Don't confuse that with how we really are or what our possibilities are, because under very different social conditions, we could construct girl children very differently. And who knows how different they might then look when they grow up as adults beside boys that have been treated the same way as well. But is it feasible that a culture would treat men and women the same, considering that one, for example, is far bigger with higher testosterone, which means more aggression. Well, does it mean that? (laughs) Yeah, but no, but good question, right? So yeah, so there'll be people who will say that it doesn't necessarily. And of course, then even if it did, you could have societies that take really seriously, okay, at puberty, these boys are going to get a big surge of testosterone that's going to change their bodies. How do we make sure that that doesn't result in cruelty or aggression towards the females or the other weaker males, even if there's sort of slightly different physiological things going on between these two types of bodies, which of course there are, there's the way that we like respond to that socially and culturally and what that does 
whether it polarizes or exacerbates the difference between those two types of bodies or not. And I think all I'm trying to say is we don't really have enough evidence and we haven't really done the experiment anywhere well (laughs) enough to say decisively that we couldn't end up with a society where people were more or less the same, at least in terms of like jobs and attitudes and dispositions and habits and preferences. But, you know, of course, these ones still get pregnant and these ones still um, yeah, have wider shoulders. <laughs> yeah. What about uh, Scandinavia and the Nordic paradox? Have you heard about that one? Yeah. My understanding is that these countries in Scandinavia, they've, they're the blueprint for doing the absolute best they can so far at completely equalizing policy in terms of like education and healthcare and parental leave and they've really really tried their best and still there's like gender violence and still there's differences in in preferences in what careers women go into and men go into and I've actually heard that in countries where it's more like socially or legally um, or economically equal there's actually a bigger divide when it comes to um, preferences yeah, and in more developing nations, I suppose there's less choice of what to do or how to live your life because people are under more pressure to, so there's less difference. I find that yeah. pretty interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I do think it's interesting. Um, but I think to take it as proof or as a counterexample, you would have to think the best that any human society has managed to do by now is the very best that could be done. And I just don't buy that. You could just go in and sort of see like what sort of cultural baggage is being brought to the Swedish idea of the sexes. And is it really like gender neutral education and childcare in the way that like the most optimistic or utopian theorist might want are there really no transmission within the family of roles when there's like largely heterosexual families that didn't grow up in that progressive way? You know, so again, I just sort of think, I don't know if I I would accept that's the best that has been done so far, but would I accept that that's the best that could be done? I don't think so. Yeah. So you would go further to make it even more gender neutral? I mean, I'm not making policy proposal right now. I think I'm just trying to make the point that if we really believed what so the strong gender critical or at least radical feminist gender abolitionist claim is that we're really wronging children because we we polarize. We, we take traits that are actually in truth universal, they, that all humans have some of them and they show up in a wide, wonderful, diverse array but instead we just polarize them completely. And so we stamp out all the feminine traits in boys and we stamp out all the masculine traits in girls. And we really, really kind of channel them into these narrow categories. And some exceptions are permitted um, because we valorize masculinity more than femininity. So we tolerate more masculinity in girls than we do femininity in boys. And you can see that in the bullying, right? The sissy gets bullied much more than the tomboy. Okay, like, so we're doing... We're doing a lot, like <laughs> we're doing a lot. But the gender abolitionists would want us to really just completely stop doing that, completely stop believing in that polarization. And then let's see, like if we really, and I, th- I feel like 80s parents were hitting that way, you know, uh, and we somehow we've kind of like completely flipped back from that today. But I think if we really did that and we really had a society with like good role models and we really sort of put the institutional building blocks in place, 
and still it failed and still the sexes were very tribal, like girls want to be friends with girls and boys want to be friends with boys and they do differentiate themselves and they do have different preferences. Then I think, I oh, okay, maybe it was our nature all along and the feminists were just doing this big experiment. And I don't even know if I think that that would be terrible. I think maybe believing, having faith in someone's equality and doing the best experiment you can to see whether they deserve it, that's kind of noble, right? Even if it then turns out, like, despite your best efforts, you were wrong. Yeah. <laughs> it would be interesting, a very interesting experiment. It would have to go on for, what, a century or something, a few decades. Yeah. I, I don't agree with everything you've just said, but I find it very interesting. <laughs> like, I don't necessarily think that um, masculinity is more celebrated than femininity. I feel... Oh, wow. Okay. I feel what? like um, my femininity is highly praised in my world. Yeah. And I know that for women who um, don't express as much femininity, you know, we can go into what femininity is, but I know that um, they might not feel the same possibly because they haven't reaped those benefits. But I definitely do think they're benefits and I feel like yeah. I have the ability to um, sort of ramp up one when it suits me and yeah. sort of play it down when it doesn't suit me. And I would say I had a pretty gender neutral childhood. I could explore whatever I wanted to. I mean, I dressed up as like Batman, but also did ballet classes and like all these things. And I still feel like I have a sort of masculine side of me, you know, like I love lifting weights and, you know, is that masculine? Well, that's kind of what I wanted to ask you. Like when you say you feel like your femininity is celebrated or maybe has been rewarded, what are you including in that basket? Because I think if you just mean I'm hot or whatever, I would agree with you that that is celebrated in women. And then the question would just be, is that celebrated in women as much as whatever the best peak demand thing of men is like being strong or intellectual, whatever the, I don't actually know what the, the thing is, but whatever the comparable <laughs> thing would be for men. Yeah. Um, so that's, so that's one alpha. question. Yeah. But then I think if I think, I wish I could quote it or I wish I had it on hand, but there's this like amazing passage in this um, second wave feminist sci-fi novel. She says things about being raised female and some, some part of it is like the, the submissiveness training, the self-effacement training. The, so it's this huge long list of like how part of what it was to be raised female was to sort of, it's not about how you look. It, it, of course, it is about that in, in part, but she was talking about things like, yeah, being taught to, you know, manage the emotional states of men or like fluff men's egos up or make herself small and squash her dreams because she was supposed to be the, the wife and the helper of him. So that femininity, if it means that, is that rewarded? Well, I think someone like, I th so, so an analysis like Kate Manns, for example, in Down Girl, talking about misogyny would be, of course, you, you're rewarded for being a good woman. So there's the standard of what it is to be a woman, like being a good wife. And then, of course, you're rewarded for being a good one and punished for being a bad one. But still, are you rewarded as much as you would be for being a good man? No, because like, there's still a hierarchy between women and men overall, even though both are being punished for failing to be the best ones of their kind. So sorry, to take that back to you, like when you say your femininity is rewarded, what traits are you thinking of? Well, firstly, when it comes to like being a good woman, yeah, 
you know, I've always been very opinionated. Part of the reason why I'm here today speaking to you, you know, working at Quillette, I, I really care about the truth and sometimes, you know, that doesn't fit the norm of what a woman should be, I suppose. Like yeah. we go by that belief that women in this society are um, expected to be like um, meek. I've definitely never fit fit that and you know I, have... I would think that's gender non-conforming see I don't think it is because I've seen I have so many female role models and women I look up to um for example Claire like this is the reason I I started working here I saw Claire and I thought fuck like that woman's amazing like she's 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 got so much bravery and not only that she's she's beautiful and she's like a mother and all these things that I value and maybe yeah. you could say that society values it too. But I liked how she could do it, um, do it all. But for do me. you think that Claire's, because I guess I would just say, say the same thing about Claire, like in terms of being a good woman for both of you, your outspokenness and being heterodox and being brave and truth oriented, it counts against you as women. But masculine traits are rewarded more in women than feminine traits are in men. And probably it sort of all counterbalances. So because you're then both beautiful and you're doing womaning well in other respects, you're sort of like let off the hook for that failure or indeed you maybe are even praised because you've got enough of the womany stuff not to really betray you, but you've also got these masculine traits. So I would still call it non-femininity and gender non-conformity in at least one respect in both of you. Um, and so I guess I'm just challenging the claim that like, you are feminine, like through and through, and yet have been rewarded for it. Because some of the things you describe, I just, I think we, if we're going to kind of gather up a survey of what everyone thinks femininity means, that that being truth oriented and heterodox and outspoken, it wouldn't be in there. That would be a masculine trait. See, for me, femininity is, uh, part of it is knowing my, my, I would say it sounds a bit woo, but inherent female power not only can I like create life inside my body which is pretty important and crazy and powerful but mm. I also need men though to do that which I think is is important I don't know maybe I've been reading too much Camille Paglia I'm not sure if you've read any of her but she's she's got this concept of Amazonian or Amazon feminism which really resonates with me which mm -hmm. is for me it's it's the ability to maybe have those um you know, norms of feminine beauty, but also the strength of walking down the street, knowing the power that I have. And I believe I have power over men. I, I don't feel subservient to men. In certain situations, I do, for sure. Mm. But it's not my default. I don't mm -hmm. feel like I'm being oppressed by men or that the men around me have any any more power of me than I have over them. In fact, I often feel like I have more. And I'm aware that as time goes on and I get older and maybe a lot of the, the power is in the way I look, in my, my sexual power, maybe. I think a lot of yeah. the power is in my brain as well um, <laughs> and personality. But I, I am aware that my, you know, power, sexual power will decrease with age. Yeah. So, yeah, I try, I try to look at it, like, very neutrally and that helps me feel good because I used to feel very um, confused and ang when I when I believed that there was a patriarchy, I felt very angry and I felt upset often. Yeah, I mean, again, I can sort of, like, 
relate to everything you're saying in terms of like a political analysis or a political movement. Like, yeah, of course, it's perfectly understandable that someone doesn't want to feel shit all the time or that's not their problem right now. So they don't really want to worry about it. Like, yeah, maybe I'll face pregnancy and breastfeeding discrimination or maybe I'll be invisible when I'm 60, but I'm not 60 yet. Like, you know, but I think, yeah, what, what would the, what, what does the red femme respond? She, she says it's women as a class, right? So if you have power when you're in your 20s to 30s because you're hot and men want to have sex with you but everyone else is having like huge problems including the people of your age that are not hot then should we all be in solidarity do we need feminism yes and then the the thing about how it makes you feel I mean again I think that's really interesting but I I read this book that I had quite a big influence on me and it was about the porn wars and she was just describing that like so much of the motivation hypothesizing I should say but that so much of the motivation for being a sex positive feminist and being sort of pro pornography was just that it made women feel cool at the time like they're cool girls and they're relaxed and they're not angry at the world but the question is whether we should be angry at the world so someone like Andrea Dworkin will say this stuff is literally hate propaganda like there are literally women being abused and used and sometimes killed and actually raped on screen for men's sexual entertainment. Do we want to feel cool or do we want to be really angry at the injustice being done to women? So again, I sort of think I can completely understand those feelings and that impulse, but it doesn't for me diminish any of the power of the like the feminist critique or the like the need for feminism. And in a sense, it's like if 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 not you then well then it falls to the other women. <laughs> so I guess I'm just aware of, so I think everyone has their own individual um, strengths and powers yeah. and some women definitely have less. And yeah. I, I'm gen- I think feminism really um, should be working for those women and does work for those women most of the time, maybe not mainstream feminism right now. But, yeah. um, well, we, we briefly got into porn. I don't know if you, mm-hmm. if you want to talk about that. I think in your new book you have a... Um, you, you've written more on that? Yeah, in my last book, um, Gender Critical Feminism, which came out last year, I, I have a chapter on the sex industry. So I talk a bit about porn there and come down in favour of the Nordic model uh, on both prostitution and porn, actually, which is not, weirdly, is not discussed. I don't know why they're not discussed together, but they should be. And, um, and then uh, my next book, so not the one that just came out, uh, but the one that will come out either late this year or early next year. Uh, it's called, is it wrong to buy sex? So you're writing a whole book on this topic? Well, it's a debate book, which is cool. So we got a, a lib femme and a rad femme together to sort of do the like, no, it's not wrong. Yes, it's absolutely wrong. And I'm sort of, um, I actually don't know if I should say, because that might put her in a fire. Okay, okay, okay. <laughs> but she's she's a friend. Um, she's someone I've known in philosophy for a long time. So I think that personal relationship helped and we had a really sort of constructive experience writing it together I think because we had that background and so we we kind of read lots of papers together and discussed them on both sides and we gave each other comments on our respective parts and we it was very collaborative rather than um sorry is she pro-sex work she's pro-sex work yeah and she's giving this sort of liberal kind of kind of standard liberal line that what really matters is consent um and if two consenting adults, if one wants to sell sex and one wants to buy it, then the, there are no resources within the liberal framework to kind of condemn that. And I'm sort of trying to channel the 
you know, the Andrea Dawkin, Catherine McKinnon, early second wave anti-sex <laughs> or what we're called anti-sex feminists uh, to argue not actually just against um, buying sex but also against sex. <laughs> wow. That's not going to be very popular. If you already had people who hated you, <laughs> this is going to make Someone was saying about my recent book that just came out, like something about the controversy, and I was like, oh, I'm just going to enjoy a few months of calm before, before the fucking um, anti-feminist men find out about my next yeah. book. Wow. <laughs> well, it might just be that actually it makes no splash at all because people have already heard that before and gotten angry about it 60 years ago, and so they don't care now. <laughs> people have short memories, though. Um, we're definitely in this very sex positive <laughs> moment right now. So I think it will definitely make a splash. Yeah, maybe. I mean, I guess, but it looks to me like Louise Perry's message, for example, is getting quite a lot of sympathy and uptake and it's not anti-sex, but it's certainly much more conservative in the sense of like, don't have sex with him for three months and make sure he's a really like good man if you're heterosexual and don't kind of go along with all this casual nonsense that it's good and empowering for you. And I feel like women, younger women have been quite hungry for that message and almost the the permission to not be cool girls when it comes to sex. Um, so I'm sort of wondering if there's a bit of a reaction to that overly liberal and permissive view and that there might sort of be some sympathy for what I'm arguing and again like it's not like there's there's not a lot of it going on but there is a movement in Korea for example that's anti-sex and there's a movement in Japan where women are just like no longer getting married or doing romance at all because they want to have careers so I don't know I kind of feel like there might be a moment um so are you quite sympathetic to Louise Perry's idea or her books have you read I assume you've read them I've just read The Case Against the Sexual Revolution. Um, I don't know if there's other books. If there are, I have not read them. Yeah. No, I've just read some of her essays and articles, but um, I think they're, yeah. they're on the same topic. So you're quite – because Louise Perry, you know, is um, – a lot of pe- conservatives like her. Um, yeah. So people wouldn't, you know, assume that you two would have much in common. Yeah, no, agreed. I was quite surprised. And I think from the thing, the caricatures I've heard about, I'd heard about the book before I read it, I wasn't expecting to agree with a lot of it. But I I guess this does just establish that there can be, which we've learned from the the trans wars, that there can be agreement from surprising quarters on certain kind of concrete issues when it comes to policy or morality. Um, So I'm anti-heterosexual sex because I think it's extraordinarily male-centred And I think that's a form of domination. And so if we care about sex equality between the biological sexes, we should also care about equality in sex when sex is a major aspect of how the two male and female sexes relate to each other. I don't see how we could just ignore that huge component of what our social lives are like. Um, But that's not why the conservatives are anti-sex. When you say you're anti-heterosexual sex, what does that mean? Should I not be having it? Um, <laughs> Boycott at sex. minimum, it means like there's something extremely problematic about how male centered it is. So, um, yeah, the like, and this is this this is empirical stuff, right? About how much time the the sort of male pleasure takes up in the process of the act, or maybe even if he's a supposedly good lover, quote unquote. 
what does he do? He gets you off first or he gets you off after. But the bulk of the time in penetrative sex is spent on him like masturbating with your body. And that can go on for like half an hour until it hurts. And you're self-effacing because you're like, oh, I just want to let him get off. And then he quickly gets you off in 30 seconds afterwards. And that's sex. And that's supposed to be like mutually beneficial. That's and we just don't count so it as- not my experience with <laughs> sex though. But I think that's probably a lot of women's experience with sex in the whole world. And, and most women don't get off at all. Like that, again, there are studies on that. But then, of course, if you can come back to that and say like, no, there's a, there's a real experience that some heterosexual couples are having that's truly mutual or truly egalitarian or truly isn't about use. I think the small number of women who can have an orgasm from penetrative sex probably have quite a different experience because it's not as much that they're being like masturbated into with penetration. It's, it can be more mutually pleasurable, but that's quite a low fraction of all women. And then I guess it's like, well, how well does the couple negotiate her also like pleasuring herself or getting him to pleasure her while he's using her in that way. And then it becomes more mutual. Okay. So yeah, open question. How many people are doing that successfully? But I would guess of all the sex, of all the heterosexual sex happening in the world, what, 90% of it is dominating in my terms, I think. Okay. Yeah. So I, I would assume that in other cultures where women don't feel so empowered, especially not sexually, yeah. I'm sure those women are not having as good sex and not having as um, pleasurable sex. And I, I have heard of people who've lived in other countries and have told me that women have told them that. But yeah. um, for me, I feel like in in this culture of, of Australia and at least where, where I grew up, um, I did feel empowered. I personally felt empowered to have the sex that I wanted to have. And it's gotten, I felt more empowered as time's gone on, but I've also worked, um, I would say worked on myself and understanding what I want and how to negotiate with people and how to negotiate with men um, in relationships, which can be difficult. Um, And I would encourage, I think we need to encourage women to do that. I mean, I think that's really fair. Like what's the best pathway to achieving equality or at least something much closer to genuine mutual benefit and mutual satisfaction? And maybe it's not something like really having a big kind of feminist opposition and anger to it. Maybe it is, like you say, just more education and more resources and more empowerment. Um, I don't know. I mean, I guess it just seems to me like women, it's an uphill battle, right? Because it's not just that you need to be like you would have needed to be kind of educated on like how to negotiate getting what you want and how to be confident about that. You're also coming up against men who haven't been educated in the right way about that or maybe you got lucky and didn't but there are a lot of men who are then just like taking what is good for them from the encounter and again there's like surveys on this right where the guy will say like he'll be shocked if he seemed seemed to be required to like provide any pleasure for a one-night stand like of course he's going to make an effort with his girlfriend but he's absolutely not going to make any I think this was in Louise's book actually so there are still a lot of men who kind of seem to feel like they have sexual entitlement to the use of a woman or a woman's body to get off rather than like what sex is. (laughs) If it's instrumental, it should be mutually instrumentalizing. But ideally it would be something other than that. Like it would be intimacy or it would be 
erotic or whatever else so i don't know can you can you just empower the girls or do you also have to like reorient the boys and then i think this is just the feminist would say the personal is political this is a big problem for all of us it's patterned along the lines of sex so let's put it on the feminist agenda as something we should be talking about yeah the way i think about it is is again through like our our history as animals and that even the fact that there's a person being penetrated, there's the penetrator and the penetratee, um, yeah. I think that is inherently, there is a power dynamic there. And yeah. um, and I'm not sure what we can do to change that. And I actually think that's a pleasurable thing for a lot of people when it's you know consensual. So, yeah, I really do see female sex, even if you're the one being penetrated, I see it as very, gives me a sense of power. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I definitely don't see it. Even if I'm in a role that's like subservient in many ways, I don't feel it. I feel, I don't know. But then again, I've had good experiences, thankfully, touch wood, like I haven't had, you know, um, any trauma, let alone sexual trauma. And I know that a lot of women have. So, but would you feel that way? Like, is that a psychological thing for you? So could you like pick up a guy at a nightclub and then him fuck you in a really like disrespect, what I would call a disrespectful way, right? Like he just, he gets off, he doesn't try to get you off at all. And then he says, maybe it's time for you to call an Uber. Could you feel disempowered or would you just be like, oh, yeah, I'm hard and I picked up this guy? <laughs> so does the physical pleasure relate at all to you to the feeling of empowerment or is it a more psychological thing about like picking up a guy and having this experience? And hmm. That's such an interesting question. And, you know, I've never had a situation like that. Okay. And I wonder why because yeah. I know it's so, so, so common. And I wonder if it's because I choose, I get a sense for a man and I um, can sort of do some filtering and see what he's going to be like or assume. Okay. If that were to happen, I it would be very horrible. Yeah, if we had like really nice, a nice experience and then he was like, you know, root and yeah. root, that would be horrible. And I would probably, depending on the situation, say like, why are you being such a expletative you know yeah like yeah. I'd I'd question him on that that's interesting because then you wouldn't feel so disempowered because you would have said something about it at the time and like got it out of your system or you would have stood up for like this is not okay whereas I think a, a lot of women maybe that happened in their sexual sexual awakenings so they just got very used to being like used and discarded or in a sense they there's a tv program on Netflix at the moment called sexify I think and one of the themes of it is this Jewish girl trying to figure out how to get her boyfriend to stop just like humping her. Like he, she wants to get off. <laughs> like are they, the are they religious? They're religious. Yeah. And I think it's just ignorance on his part, but it's a whole sort of story about how does she like broach with him that there should be more to sex than this. Um, and I just, I think it's at least, you know, what in my age group and maybe older, maybe things have changed a lot, but it was very common for, for women just to talk about how, terrible sexes and why everyone always said it was good because then you just 
bored or it's painful, <laughs> just sort of waiting for it to be finished. And that means for him to be finished with you. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I think it's a, it's a cultural thing and there are some cultures, especially very religious cultures, where a woman's pleasure isn't even considered, you know, people yeah. don't know about it. They don't even know about the anatomy. Um, yeah. And... But the, the culture that I move through and that I've grown up in hasn't been like that at all. Yeah. I think yeah. there has been a generational change from yeah. what I can see. So I don't know how that will come. Yeah, when that comes back to the question of like what, what counts as a feminist problem or right or what. Sh- yeah, it's like are you the exception? Um, am I or the people I know the, the exception? is the way to get there just more of this like empowerment and education and maybe porn plays a role in that? Or is it like, yeah, really big feminist campaign or backlash against that stuff and getting rid of porn, which is sending people in the wrong direction? I I don't know. Um, I think one of the things I'm realizing between with you and I is that I don't think of these issues in like a structural way. I think about the individual right empowerment because I know that I've changed through and that I've had these you know positive experiences through reckoning with these ideas myself and practicing my values and but I guess it's a bit utopian to believe that um everyone can do that or everyone has the time or is in a situation where you know they're empowered enough to do that so that's right. That would be the worry that like there is still the whole class of women and their situation. And even if some women have the resources in whichever way to kind of pull themselves out of that sex-based pattern, still all the other women are there suffering it. And then, and that's what feminism is trying to say. It's like, the sisters need you. <laughs> and it doesn't mean everyone has to be that. Of course, people might have other things they care about more and of course, people might just want to get on with their lives. Like there are lots of people who are apolitical in every respect. I think that's fine. Um, but I guess the the feminist project is just to be like, hey, look, this is happening to women everywhere and many women, maybe most women. And if you guys can help, that would be great. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. Um, to finish up, I have one last question. Um, <laughs> and that is, do you think I'm a feminist, judging from what you've seen? And is it an important question? Um, be as harsh as you want to be I won't be offended it doesn't seem obvious to me that you're not and I think part of that explanation is just that there's so many ways to be a feminist today I think from what you said in that last comment it seems like you are quite steeped in the liberal tradition so more interested in things like individual choice and autonomy and experience within the structure rather than thinking about things in like collective or structural terms um and maybe yeah some of the like evolutionary psychology stuff maybe you're it seems to me like you're you're leaning in a way that's like gonna let you off the hook from caring about certain Mm -hmm. things um (laughs) but that's of course just me speaking as a rad femme right and and if we step outside of our existing like yeah predispositions or or types which type of feminism is getting things more right than anyone else? I, I can't say. I can just say that from my having done the work or reading or whatever, I have landed at high amounts of sympathy with the radical feminist position. Doesn't mean it's the right position. So you think that could change in the future? I mean, it's. I think it's probably pretty set. Like I started reading in 20, 
18 and I've now written like three books and worked my way through a lot of the second wave literature and some of the contemporary literature. And I, I just, yeah, I do find when I read like contemporary stuff, third wave stuff, especially contemporary feminist philosophy, I just want to gouge my eyes out. So I feel like I'm maybe like pretty settled in my views. Of course, one thing I can see is that I maybe just, it's possible that I would just become less passionate about feminism at some point, like it definitely really like swept me up in this, like was very all consuming for a while. And maybe it's slightly starting to loosen its grip, at least in terms of like the intellectual project. Cause, and I think that's just a philosophical thing for me. When the intellectual puzzles are a bit better resolved and I know my position, I can kind of relax and then look around for the next big problem. So maybe I'm feeling ready to like get a new big project in the next like year or so. <laughs> well, I've, I've uh, had the opposite. Like I sort of cared less about feminism until these um, trans rights issues started yeah. popping up and gender issues. Yeah. So it's cool. I'm going through another like feminist wave, like in high yeah, school. Yeah, that's great. And I, I think that's happening to a lot of people, right? And it's kind of cool because it's bringing – people who had become not, I'm not saying that about you, but I'm saying there's people out there who had become very complacent about, yeah, "Yeah, maybe feminism's done and maybe we're all inclusive now and, and we don't need that thing. But then it's like, Oh no, wait, we we do need that thing. (laughs) And so it's like, yes, welcome back. And there's these other problems too. Let's look at porn. (laughs) Yeah. Well, thank you so much for talking to me. We talked about some crazy (laughs) issues that I didn't think we were going to talk about, but that's amazing. Yeah, it was great. Thank you. 